Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. Welcome to the talky bit. As is often the case for me, um, I'm guided in my own movement through a series like this by the wisdom of others. Uh, in particular, I've been appreciating uh, the work of Bell Hooks in this, this book, um, All About Love, New Visions. I like, I like her dedication in which she, she dedicates this to Anthony, who uh, someone she describes as her most intimate listener. Uh, I think that listening well is a thing that we can that we can do for one another, and it, it warmed me before I even you know opened the book to think that the author could write from a space like that. In particular, for me to this point in the series, Hooks has been the person who's pointed me toward Scott Peck's definition of love that I've been working with, and lots of the ideas I'm springboarding from in the series have either come into my thoughts through her work, or I'm reading a story or an illustration in her work, and that sparks another idea for me. So. I'm indebted to Bell Hooks for this and for so much more. She's, she's been an influential presence in my life for many years. Uh, another one of those writers that, uh, that Dash appointed me toward, Dash's radar for what I should be reading is extraordinary and, uh, and has been a real gift in my life. So in All About Love, Hooks has a, title, a chapter entitled Justice-Childhood Love Lessons. And in that chapter, she focuses on both lessons she learned about love as a child and the ways in which many of us and many children mislearn the proper relationship between love and justice in our formative years. This particular morning in this gathering in the room, we're all parents. Uh, So I think we'll find some aspects of this interesting in that regard. Um, But I want to read you a bit of a longer section from Hooks on this, partly to set up some other ideas, but also because she lays out this problem of love and justice with a combination of clarity and emotion that I find uh, winsome and important because justice is an easy thing to get philosophical about. And we'll kind of explore some of that aspect of it. But in the end, my word, the way that we do justice and the way that we do love, and we've been talking about love as an enacted thing all the way through the series, and the intersection between those two, one of my uh, training colleagues likes to say, feelings first, facts follow. Like this stuff hits us in the feelings. And if we don't approach it that way and deal with it that way the facts are kind of like that's nice you know it was a little bit like the experience of the the songwriter in the song we did this morning right just spent all these years i get my degree the philosopher says they can see through me but uh, i still i'm still going to the bar looking for comfort or a friend you know that didn't quite settle it right so i want us to be at that intersection so i would invite you to listen to what i'm going to read with your heart and not just your head and although it might be somewhat difficult to do i would invite you to listen to what Hooks is talking about for some part of your own story. That'll make more sense, perhaps, as I read. We learn about love in childhood. Whether our homes are happy or troubled, our families functional or dysfunctional, it's the original school of love. 
I cannot remember ever wanting to ask my parents to define love. To my child's mind, love was the good feeling you got when family treated you like you mattered and you treated them like they mattered. Love was always and only about good feeling. In early adolescence, when we were whipped or told that, and told that these punishments were, quote, for our own good or, quote, I'm doing this because I love you, my siblings and I were confused. Why was harsh punishment a gesture of love? As children do, we pretended to accept this grown-up logic, but we knew in our hearts it was not right. We knew it was a lie, just like the lie the grown-ups told when they explained after harsh punishment, it hurts me more than it hurts you. There is nothing that creates more confusion about love in the minds and hearts of children than the unkind and or cruel punishment meted out by the grown-ups they have been taught they should love and respect. Such children learn early on to question the meaning of love, to yearn for love, even as they doubt it exists. On the flip side, there are masses of children who grow up confident love is a good feeling, who are never punished, who are allowed to believe that love is only about getting your needs met, your desires satisfied. In their child's minds, love is not about what we have to give. Love is mostly something given to them. When children like these are overindulged, either materially or being allowed to act out, this is a form of neglect. These children, though not in any way abused or uncared for, are usually as unclear about love's meaning as their neglected and emotionally abandoned counterparts. Both groups have learned to think about love primarily in relation to good feelings, in the context of reward and punishment. And... From early childhood on, most of us remember being told we were loved when we did things pleasing to our parents, and we learned to give them affirmations of love when they pleased us. As children grow, they associate love more with acts of attention, affection, and caring. They still see parents who attempt to satisfy their desires as giving love. And uh, we've talked about cathection and connection to care as being mistaken for love at another point in this series. And that's the idea that Hooks is referencing here sort of obliquely. Children from all classes tell me that they love their parents and are loved by them, even those who are being hurt or abused. When asked to define love, small children pretty much agree that it's a good feeling, quote, like when you have something to eat that you really like, close quote, especially if it's your favorite. And they will say things like, my mommy loves me because she takes care of me and helps me do everything right. When asked how to love someone, they talk about giving hugs and kisses, being sweet and cuddly. The notion that love is about getting what one wants, whether it's a hug or a new sweater or a trip to Disneyland, is a way of thinking about love that makes it difficult for children to acquire a deeper emotional understanding. A lot of insight in there. So to backtrack a little bit, when Hooks is speaking about the confusion caused by this misequating of love and punishment, she writes... There is nothing that creates more confusion about love in the minds and hearts of children than unkind and slash or cruel punishment meted out by the grown-ups they have been taught they should love and respect. And when she addresses herself to the other side of the coin, that of being allowed to think that love is about getting what we want, she notes that this makes it hard to acquire a deeper emotional understanding. So I want to take just a little detour here into the ways in which many of us have been taught to imagine God because... In many cases, those ways of imagining God are directly pinned to what Hooks is talking about. This won't be true for everyone, of course. 
But many of us were taught to picture the divine in human or superhuman terms, especially in kind of relational frameworks such as a parent-child relationship. And, of course, this didn't come from nowhere. It came from, among other things, ancient texts that used this sort of imagery, uh, not least of all because the writers of those stories were surrounded by mythologies that pictured the divine-human relationship in these terms. So we can become, for example, the Gospel of John tells us that we can become, quote, the children of God if God gives us the right to do so and then explains how we might earn that right to be the children of God. So it's really not a big surprise, at least from where I sit, to encounter convoluted and tangled rationale for human suffering that either suggests or outright commits to the notion that we're suffering because God, in his love, is trying to help us learn something. If we learned as children that these things can go together, that love and abuse can go hand in hand, then it's really not much of a shock when we try to make that same logic fit the ways we think about an idea like God the Father as punishing us because he loves us, or at the very least not intervening in our suffering for that same reason. It's the shape we already know. It's what we already learned. There's a common saying that hurt people hurt people. And I know it's a trope, uh, and in many instances I, I think a dangerous oversimplification of something that's enormously complex and multifaceted. I also know that tropes don't come from nowhere. And I think the relationship between this idea and the misunderstandings many of us may have learned about the dynamics of love and justice are worth noting. For my part, I can hear my dad saying the sorts of things Hooks writes about in this chapter, things like, this hurts me more than it hurts you, and this is for your own good, I'm doing this because I love you, as part of the framework, as part of the explanation for physical punishment. Now, I am not mentioning this to throw my dad under the bus. I believe he was doing the best he knew how, and he was working with what he knew. I think that's probably true for most of us when it comes to trying to figure out what it looks like to parse the relationship between love and justice, right? We're doing the best we can, and we're working with what we know. And also, as a parent myself, uh, my dad's got all my empathy on this one. (laughs) Figuring out what it looks like to guide young lives, to find some way to stay out of the ditch of punishment on the one side and overindulgence on the other, that has never been and will never be easy. That said, I think the dilemma is worth facing into because no matter how our ideas about parenting or any other crossroads involving justice evolve, this challenge doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. This is just a tough one. So, (laughs) in the interest of leaving us with something other than yet another reason to feel guilty or inadequate if we're parents, or just confused about the relationship between love and justice in general, I want to explore a couple of ideas that I've found helpful and that I hope uh, others will as well. First of all, one of the reasons I keep returning to our working definition of love in this series is to suggest that it might be a pretty decent benchmark when we're wrestling with just these sorts of challenges. So we've been speaking of love as, quote, the will to extend oneself for the purposes of nurturing one's own and another's spiritual growth, by which the author means their wholeness as a person, body, mind, and spirit, uh, working well together. I find it pretty simple to imagine the intersections for that when it comes to loving others including those we might be responsible for nurturing. I think about how loving other people takes some extending of ourselves, doesn't it? we gotta, we got to dig for that. It can be daunting to keep mining for our better selves when someone we're trying to extend care toward doesn't seem to be cooperating or they're not changing. They're not kind of coming around to our perspective on this or whatever it is that we're working for. 
got to dig pretty deep to keep extending sometimes in that. And I don't know about you, but I'm also struck by how difficult it can be to choose to nurture my own wholeness as a person, right? Excuses abound. <laughs> uh, you know, too busy nurturing others. There's a good one. So if we start there with that kind of set of ideas about the, the challenge of this extension of the self in the interest of love as a definition, if we start there in our consideration of this dynamic relationship between love and justice, what we have so far is the idea that to love is to extend ourselves in the interest of both our own and others' growth as whole persons. So let's say we're, let's say we're just, that's a jumping off point. So how does that fit with what it might mean to do justice or to act justly as we practice extending ourselves for the nurturance of ourselves and others? How do those things fit together if they do? There are, as you may know, or can probably imagine, a lot of different definitions of justice. Uh, There are a lot of different categories of justice. We could consider the matter of justice as a virtue. We could consider global justice. We can talk about distributive justice. We can talk about retributive justice. Retributive justice. There's lots of different windows in on this. Or we could just check our news feed, (laughs) and we could ask about any number of conflicts, justice for whom, and from what perspective. I'm not mentioning all these matters to be discouraging. I'm mentioning them so that when we wade into this and we find it complicated, perhaps to such a degree that we're tempted to just, you know, throw up our hands in despair and give up, we choose instead to acknowledge that this is complicated for everyone and to just keep leaning in. With that in mind, uh, let's see if we can focus this a little bit more for our own purposes. I'm going to go with some of the classical Western philosophical definitions for justice here. Not because I think they're superior, uh, but because I think we'll recognize their general principles. I think we'll be able to access them and work with them a bit more readily than if I went further afield uh, with those definitions. So let's start with this one. This is is a pretty good summary of a lot of Western thought about, uh, philosophical thought about justice. Justice is a rational mean, uh, a rational or thought out middle ground between the vicious extremes of deficiency and excess having to do with our external actions regarding others. So like with our definition of love, this is an enacted idea, all right? It's a thing we do. So that's a philosophical definition, and within that discipline, philosophy, justice is a concept, and it it establishes balance or fairness. So most of the definitions come back around to looking for balance or fairness. Usually the context for that balance uh, being sought is within reciprocal or connected relationships among individuals, and then that extends to larger groups or communities and societies and so on. But it sort of starts between individuals. So that kind of works with what we've been talking about when it comes to trying to stay out of the ditch of punishment on the one hand and permissiveness on the other, right? This seeking of balance. Plato had a similar emphasis. Justice, according to Plato, is about balance and harmony. I read that definition, and I thought about you know, the war that's taking up the most space in the news these days? Balance and harmony. I doesn't look like what's being sought. And not words that I tend to hear, even when the, the thoughtful, the, the people who are trying to stand back and reflect from a wider vantage point on this. I, I don't hear people talking about balance. Retribution, Yes. The eradication of a threat, yes. Harmony, not so much, right? So it's interesting. Balance and harmony. And to Plato, justice represents the right relationship between conflicting aspects 
within an individual or a community. The right relationship between those things. Plato defines justice as everyone having what belongs to them or doing what they are responsible for. Hmm. That's a pretty interesting lens on a lot of things, isn't it? From a more contemporary philosophical point of view, influenced by lots of contemporary philosophy, which has sort of taken us away, generally speaking, very broad brush here, but taken us away from the idea that anything could be said to be absolute. Uh, From that vantage point, justice is sometimes regarded as a moral concept. Uh, It's very elusive. It bears no universal definition. But what does seem to be, if not universal, then widespread in that vantage point is this idea that everyone should be given what they deserve. That sort of seems to be a concept that many different notions about justice return to. All right. So that might be quite a lot to try to absorb. Let's just try to focus on the idea that justice is a middle ground between the vicious extremes of deficiency and excess. I think I I landed there because it felt like there was a resonance in that idea and uh, some of the ideas we've talked about regarding love. There was an intersection there. If we think about bell hooks emphasis on neither extreme when nurturing kids or peck's definition of avoiding those same extremes when nurturing ourselves or others what sorts of ideas might guide us in seeking that middle way that that balance and i want to make a suggestion here that i expect will not be uniformly appealing so there you go uh, you can even decide in advance this one isn't for you <laughs> before you even hear it uh, i hope you always feel like you can do that but i'm going to just you know make that explicit this morning We had a few brief conversations, uh, just kind of little stems from other things we were talking about a a few weeks ago in this space, about an idea that keeps popping up among those who are thinking critically about the overall state of the culture on this continent these days. Um, To your observation, Shereen, about lots of people struggling, I think. You know, the the culture watchers and measurers are seeing what you were describing as well. And some of those folks are saying things like, and, and Judy, you brought this into the conversation that morning as I remember it, some of these folks are saying things like, I think people on this continent need to find religion again. Now, one of the things that I find very intriguing about that conversation broadly is a lot of the people that are saying things like, I think people on this continent need to find religion again, are not themselves religious. They're not advocating for something that they're selling, if you will. In fact, some of those folks really prefer to hold a worldview that has no room in it at all for any kind of sacred storylines or any notions of the divine. And when those folks talk about people needing religion again, they're not talking about people needing faith in the religious sense or needing to have their souls saved or something like that. They're talking about things like people needing community, identity, group interaction, support, mythology, guiding stories. It's not about becoming, in John's language, in the Gospel of John, it's not about becoming children of God, as John would have meant that. It's about taking care of one another. Now, I realize that those ideas are not mutually exclusive. But I also want to be clear about what is and isn't going on in many of those conversations, which brings me to my take it or leave it, or just take it home and wrestle with it and dissect it suggestion. There's there's an ancient Hebrew text in which the writer is trying to address some systemic injustices. And the context is that the urban elite, so this is the context this person's writing to, the urban elite are mistreating the rural populace, There is routinely injustice toward those that are perceived as a lower class. There's routine mistreatment of women and children. There is routinely unjust business practice, uh, some of which shows up as the exploitation of the poor. Basically, the context for this writer is that the rich are living in luxury, 
while the marginalized suffer to pay for the extravagances of those in power. And from the perspectives of the power holders and the wealthy, they are doing exactly what God has given them the right to do. Does this sound a little bit familiar, like a, more than a little bit like the story of colonization? If it does, that's not coincidental. Uh, there's, a, there's a not very hard line to connect this to that uh, at all. Not hard to connect at all, but that's not what we're talking about, so I'm just going to put a pin in that for right now. The prophet in this story, who's doing that classic prophet thing of mediating between what the people can generally see or inclined to look at and experience and what they can't or are less inclined to, and as somebody who believes that, in this case, the Hebrew God has the answers, takes on this role of the, the, this mediating person and asks God what it would take to rectify the situation. Right? Kind of, that's kind of what prophets do in the context of those stories. It's a, an important function. And, and so he suggests all the usual religious things from his context because he's, he's looking for an answer, right? Like, how do we solve this? There's a, an injustice. It's systemic. It's visible to everybody and justified by the power holders on the basis that in, in your name, God, right? God, what do, you, what do we need to do to fix this? What do, what do you need? Uh, offerings? Sacrifices? Do you, do you need people to bring their firstborn? This is not my list. This is the list from the text. So we might look at that list and think it's a bit odd, right? Not the things we might think of. But basically, in context, it's pretty much the ancient and contextual cultural equivalent of any religious list of right beliefs. That's what the prophet is saying. They're like, God, if we just, if we, are these the right things? Like, if we believe and do these things, is that going to fix this up? Is this going to deal with the injustice? And the answer to that question, as we find it in this particular story, is no. That will not sort this out. There are many ways in which the Bible no longer speaks to me as it once did. It's become a very different kind of book to me over the decades. doesn't mean that the stories no longer have anything to say. And uh, so in that spirit, in the context of this story, what will sort it out, the God character says, is doing justice. Not believing in the concept, but enacting it. And being passionate about loving, a heart word, loving mercy, and holding beliefs with humility, which means holding them loosely. Those things, God tells the prophet, are the corrective for the unjust notions that are guiding the oppressors, which are ideas like God gave us this power over you or God gave us this land and you as ours to do with as we see fit. The, the answer, the God character actually says in so many words, is actually not more religion. It's more justice and more mercy and more humility. Interesting, isn't it? Now, whatever we might think about what kind of story this is, whether we think it's ancient wisdom, whether we think it's divine truth, whether we think it's history adjusted to make a point, whether we think it's a curious cultural artifact, whatever lens we bring to bear on it, it seems to me that these ideas actually make quite a lot of sense if what we're looking for is balance. If what we're looking for is a mean between the vicious extremes of deficiency and excess. How so? Well, from my vantage point, actively seeking that balance, living justly, that's how we've defined that balance, would call us to dig pretty deep 
in ourselves. It would call us toward things like loving mercy, which basically means to extend ourselves in the interest of wholeness, as opposed to retreating to the smaller notion of retribution. Mercy as a concept is absurd. <laughs> it's really, truly ridiculous. Un- unmerited extension of the self, of love, of care. Come on. You want to create a culture of victims, just do that. You know, culture of doormats. Just keep extending yourself. That's why they, this why mercy lives together with justice, with balance. Okay, like they, they need to be together. This idea that, that doing all of this, knowing that there is more that we don't know than that there is that we do. So holding our beliefs loosely or humbly. So when we do reach into those realms where we kind of go, this is ridiculous. How could this ever work? And we find ourselves struggling because it isn't working. Or kind of going, oh, reach too far. Need to need to step back because now I'm now I'm um, unable to care for myself because of how I'm extending care to others. So I need to seek a balance here. When those things play well together, they actually serve us well when it comes to enacting justice, including going, oh, that belief that I had that that I was behaving like this. That takes me too far in this direction. I need to retreat. I need to rebalance. This expression of this value of love when I enact it in this context does not behave like love. It behaves like neglect or abuse. Hooks, uh, I didn't talk about this, but it's richly woven into the bit that I read. She goes on to it right after the quote that I read. She points out that the the family in our culture is uh, one of the least questions fascistic Environments, like in the context of our homes, we can behave as autocrats, as as dictators, and nobody calls it into question until we cross some legal boundary. But we can travel a long ways in the direction of hurting other people before that happens, right? Right, right, yeah. And I hate that, right? When our kids like you are behaving like a. Yeah, this would be a lot more efficient if yeah. you could just understand that I'm in charge here because I said so. Right? From the inside, Hook's point, of course, is that it doesn't from the outside. And she tells a story about being at a party and talking to people about how they discipline their kids. And they're like, well, I just, I just grab their arm and I just pinch until they squeak and I've got their attention. And then she's like, if you did that to your girlfriend or your partner or somebody at work, you, you, like, you know, ring, ring, you'd be out of here, right? But inside our homes... We can do these kinds of things. And, and, and this is a, she's like, this is an educated, liberal group of people I was talking to in terms of values. And nobody called it into question. Everybody was just like, yeah, that works, right? You know, like she, she was just kind of like, uh, I don't get it. And, and so there's that balance thing, right? So that's, I tell that story as an example of ways in which we might overextend ourselves in the interest of, I want my kids to know, know what no means. I want them to understand that I am here trying to guide them and that they can trust that. And I need to have their attention. And so like, we, can, we can justify all kinds of our extensions in the name of love. And so one of the things those companion concepts of mercy and humility do is they help us find they help us have paths to walk when we need to find our way back to balance, and that's pretty important. I mean, I would say it's essential. All right, I could keep going because this is fascinating, but I'm going to just wrap that up uh, by saying that in this this complex balancing act of loving justly, I think we could do worse than to reference some of those uh, challenging notions, and maybe uh, maybe we couldn't actually do a lot better. You know, they're worth they're worth musing. Peace. <laughs>